Good evening and welcome. My name is Gillian McIntyre and I coordinate the adult programs here. And I'm delighted to welcome you all tonight for a, what's going to be a really interesting evening, I believe, with Franco Mondini-Ruiz and Kent Monkman. Um, before we even start, I would like to acknowledge our sponsors, to whom we are extremely grateful. Amex is our signature partner for all contemporary programming. So, Gerald McMaster was going to moderate a conversation between these two artists after they've made a presentation this evening, and very sadly, he's been called away for a family death, so he's at a funeral in Saskatchewan. So, um, I, we, I invited Richard Hill, who worked at the AGO some while ago. Richard Hill teaches art and art history at York University, and he, he specializes in Aboriginal, Canadian, and American studies, and worked here. We can't remember quite when you left, Richard. It feels as if you're still here. But he started some excellent work with the McLaughlin Gallery. I don't know if any of you remember that, when we had First Nations and 19th century sort of First Nations and Canadian art. Of course, First Nations is also Canadian. Um, and I'm glad to say that the work is continuing here, Richard. So both of these artists are going to first present. Kent will present first, and then Franco, and then all three will come on stage and we'll have a conversation, and then we'll open it up to what I know are going to be many conversations. So I'd first I'd like to invite Richard Hill to do the introductions. I'm extremely aware of the fact that my role here is as not Gerald. <laughs> um, I certainly uh, give my, send, uh, I'm sure all of us do, our good wishes uh, to him at this time. And um, I'm proceeding, uh, I suppose, a little bit in uh, the spirit of uh, trying to carry over a few of the things uh, that he wanted to say. So he's, uh, we talked a little bit uh, or exchanged emails. So um, I have a bit of a sense of some of the questions he wanted to ask, uh, but obviously I can't give uh, uh, the kind of introduction uh, that would be as related to the uh, current exhibition, um, but I'll bring some other uh, things to the table, I hope. Mostly, I'm uh, frankly just very glad to have the opportunity to be here. I'm a little disappointed that I'm not able to be in the audience and listen to what Gerald might say, uh, but on the other hand, I got in for free, so. <clears throat> anyway, um, I want to introduce two uh, artists who I think are extremely uh, important artists uh, who uh, do work that uh, really challenges uh, a lot of our ideas, uh, a lot of uh, accepted wisdom, I suppose, around uh, the questions of indigenous identity. Um, Kent Monkman and Franco Mondini-Ruiz. Um, I'm going to read, uh, this is Gerald's introduction, so I'm just trying to channel as much Geraldness as I can. Um, I'm not a, a worthy substitute necessarily, but bear with me. Franco Mondini Ruiz was born in San Antonio, Texas, and currently lives in Houston. Having earned a bachelor's degree in English and a Juris Doctorate, I hope I pronounced that right, probably not, uh, from St. Mary's University in San Antonio, Texas, he gave up his legal practice to focus on art in 1995. Franco participated in the 2000 Whitney Biennale and has received awards including a Pollock Krasner Foundation grant in 2000 and a Penny McCall Foundation Fellowship in 2002. 
His work has been exhibited at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, the Museum of Contemporary Art in San Diego, and El Museo del Barrio in New York. In 2002, he participated in the exhibition Ultra Baroque, Aspects of Post-Latin American Art that came to the Art Gallery of Ontario, uh, which was the chance that I had to meet him for the first time. Um, and uh, it was a pleasure, and it's a pleasure again. Uh, you're, there's gonna be no shortage of personality on stage uh, today, once I uh, move to the background a little bit. <laughs> uh, so carrying on with Gerald's uh, words, well known for his over-the-top sculptural vignettes and multitude of paintings, small and large. Um, the Teano, 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 uh, which is Spanish for Texan, Gerald tells me, Tex-Mex. Um, artist uh, Franco infuses his performances, installations, and paintings with an ec ecstatic sense of self-definition, which you're going to witness, I'm sure. Um, his hybrid objects and genre-bending installations reflect his own heritage and shifting cultural and the shifting cultural tone of the United States. Mondini Ruiz is known for culling used or neglected kitsch ceramic objects from local antique stores and recombining them into newly minted objects rich with sly cultural commentary. A true nonstop feast of visual and conceptual delights will await the visitor to Mondini Ruiz's exhibit, Art Buffet. It can, it can consist of a collection of new sculptures, porcelain, porcelain's art world, piñatas, and paintings in all sizes. He will offer an ever-changing array of art goodies, ranging in price from $10 to $10,000, ensuring no one goes away hungry. Indeed, Franco is here to participate in AGO's massive party, which happens here tomorrow evening, at which time he will be on the premises serving art, conversation, and strategies for a better world of feast without famine. That's certainly something to look forward to. Now I'd like to introduce Kent Monkman. Kent Monkman was born in St. Mary's, Ontario, but grew up in Winnipeg. He is an artist of English-Irish descent and of Swampy Cree ancestry from the Fisher River Band in southern Manitoba. An artist who works with a variety of media, including painting, film, and video, performance and installation, his most recent solo exhibition, Triumph of Mischief, or Mischief, at the Art Gallery of Hamilton is currently on tour throughout Canada. He has participated in various international group exhibitions, including We Come in Peace, Histories of the Americas at the Musée d'Art Contemporain in de Montreal, and the American West at Compton Verney in Warwickshire, England, which I had the uh, pleasure of being a co-curator of. Monkman has created site-specific performances at the McMichael Canadian Art Collection and at Compton Verney, UK, and has also made super 8-millimeter versions of these performances that he calls colonial art space interventions. His award-winning short film and video works, uh, such as shooting, the shooting of Geronimo, have been screened at various national and international festivals, including Imaginative, Sundance, Berlin, and the Toronto International Festival. His work is represented in the collections of the National Gallery of Canada, the Montreal Museum of Fine Arts, Museum London, Mackenzie Art Gallery, and most recently and quite visibly the Art Gallery of Ontario, of course. Um, I should just say one thing, too, about uh, my own experience in watching Ken's art, Ken's art develop. It doesn't really, this, this starts to sound like uh, uh, something you might say about uh, someone you're proud of and you've watched them uh, develop. Uh, it sounds almost patronizing maybe, but um, I really do remember not that long ago going to Kent's studio um, and watching him start these little tiny landscapes 
that he was working on. Uh, and then the next time I came back, they were bigger. And the next time, they were bigger. Uh, and then suddenly, it was taking the art world by storm, uh, and justifiably so. Um, and so it's really terrific to, to have been able to watch that. And I'm really uh, excited to be able to participate in this conversation with uh, both of these artists. So with that said, um, is it Kent who's start? So we'll start with Kent, um, and then uh, Franco, and then we'll uh, get together and we'll have a bit of a chat uh, between the three of us and uh, fairly quickly, hopefully, move into a uh, conversation with, uh, with your participation as well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to the AGO for uh, inviting me to uh, uh, participate in this discussion about, about Remix. Um, I haven't seen the show yet, but I did uh, see it uh, in its uh, first incarnation uh, in Phoenix. I missed the New York leg of the exhibition, but I'm very proud to be part of this exhibition. Um, I was really impressed with uh, uh, Gerald's um, uh, vision and with his curatorial premise for, for this show. Um, I'm really interested in art history, so I, I'm going to take you through a little art history lecture here um, and um, talk to you a little bit about, uh, give you a bit of background uh, on my work uh, before getting into some of my more recent work. Um, I really became interested in art history, uh, especially the, the history of uh, art in North America, um, as I was uh, developing my art practice because I was really interested in two, two things. Um, uh, one was this idea of colonization and, well, specifically colonized sexuality. And uh, the other uh, part, which was um, the, the, the narratives that were somehow obliterated or, or painted out of, of this canon of art history that we all know so, so very well. Uh, that's part of our, that really forms the foundation of our museums in, in North America. Um, so uh, the more I looked, the more interesting it got. And I looked at the big pictures, and then I started looking kind of more closely at all the individual artists, and, and that got even more and more interesting. Um, this is um, a painting by Albert Bierstadt, and uh, I was particularly interested in, in, in this school of, of painters because it really tied into this idea of how uh, the church had colonized Aboriginal sexuality. And um, these paintings, for me, really um, kind of were... Um, really imbued with a strong, very strong sort of religious, rel religiosity. So um, I gravitated towards this, this idiom quite quickly. Um, and these painters like Ed Bierstadt and Thomas Cole and so forth were really transplanting you know, these European uh, ideologies onto North America. And this is ostensibly, I guess, drawn or, or inspired by a North American landscape, but it's Thomas Cole's painting of, of the Garden of Eden. So the more I looked at these uh, paintings from art history, the more I became interested in the themes that these artists were uh, developing in their work. Um, this idea of North America as the promised land, again, a very biblical kind of theme, um, the Garden of Eden, a paradise. Um, and then, of course, here's the expulsion from paradise. Um, so that brought me to, to many different places uh, in art history. And um, this is a painting by... Uh, uh, William uh, Tyler Ranney, I believe, and it's called uh, Daniel Boone's First View of the Kentucky Valley. So at this point, uh, prior to this, I'd been <clears throat> working sort of semi-representationally, and uh, but I, I knew that if I was going to really tackle this work, I had to, to really get a grasp of the vocabulary of painting that these artists were, were, um, were using. 
Um, so I did my first painting in this direction, and it's also called Daniel Boone's First uh, View of the Kentucky Valley. <laughs> and you can see there's a sort of a layer of text here over the background, which I uh, was kind of a remnant of my previous body of work, which I kind of dropped very quickly thereafter. But this was one of the small paintings, I believe, that Richard saw in my studio. So uh, I moved, as I moved through art history, again, I kind of came into these sub-themes that were, it was part of the work of, of the 19th century and even part of the 18th century. Um, one of them that interested me, of course, was the captivity narratives, because this really tied in directly to um, this idea of sexuality and, and colonized sexuality. And um, the more I looked, uh, the more interesting it got. Um, here's another uh, painting. Uh, sorry, the previous one is called The, the Rape of Jane McRae. This one's the abduction, I think, of Daniel Boone's daughter by the Indians. Um, and this is another version of the abduction of Daniel Boone's daughter by the Indians. This is by Carl Wimar, a German uh, painter. So this was my response to that idea of the captivity narrative. This is called The Rape of Daniel Boone Jr. And this is... Uh, on loan here at the AGO in, in one of the European galleries. I kind of imagined uh, this moment of liberation on, on the beach, sort of, with a, sort of a Huckleberry Finn kind of character. Um, so as I kind of got uh, more into the, the, the period, I, I started to look at the, the individual, uh, the lives of these individual characters, and I, I sort of thought about, well, what motivated these guys to go out to the frontier and you know, basically spend their lifetime painting Indians and, and the frontier? Um, one of the most interesting characters I came across was, oh, sorry, and this is uh, John McStanley, and he's painted himself here hunting buffalo. Um, one of the most interesting characters I found was George Catlin, and George Catlin really spent uh, many, many years painting portraits of Aboriginal people and, and scenes of village life and so forth. So I really started to think about the individual ego of the artist and, and thought of that as an interesting kind of entry point to challenge the subjectivity of the work, was to look at you know, the career motivation, what, what really drove these guys. So as I kind of thought about it, I thought I needed that, an artistic persona to kind of uh, put in, inside the paintings and disrupt these, these narratives and in, possibly insert some other narratives. Um, and I felt that uh, as an Aboriginal man, as a gay man, that I wanted to uh, inhabit a role um, known as the, the Bear Dash role uh, in the work. Um, this is a Zuni man-woman um, known as Wewa, who was a very significant um, person in her, her, her community, actually went to visit George Washington and, and passed as a handsome woman. Um, <laughs> so I created this character, and her name is Miss Chief Eagle Testicle. And she uh, is usually at the center of uh, each painting, and she's kind of in charge. So it was really about reversing this uh, kind of reversing the power dynamics, reversing the role, reversing the gaze. And um, as you can see, I borrowed inspiration from Cher for her, her look. I was particularly intrigued with Cher's kind of gender cross-dressing. Um, and this is Molly Spotted Elk. And Molly Spotted Elk was a Penobscot woman who um, was dancing in Paris. And she, she beat Cher to that, to that look by about, you know, 40 years or so. Um, so um, I started... Uh, you know, playing with power and uh, reversing the artist and model uh, relationship. Um, <clears throat> uh, not 
too long after, I decided it was time to bring Mischief to life, and I started to create a, a performance. Uh, the performance part of my practice kind of grew out of the painting. So as you'll see as I go through the, the performance work, the video work, um, they kind of uh, inform each other, and I kind of move fluidly back and forth between them. Uh, this was a performance I did at the McMichael Canadian Art Collection, and it was very much about the, the artist observing the model, and I borrowed... Uh, passages from George Catlin and, and um, Paul Kane in, in their observations of Aboriginal people and just kind of reversed it and applied them to these European males who I dressed up to look more authentic. <laughs> this uh, performance was kind of um, uh, adapted for the film, The Group of Seven Inches, which we also shot at the McMichael <laughs> Canadian Art Collection. Um, so Mischief started to inhabit these paintings and, and started to kind of um, disrupt. Um, this is uh, the first of three paintings in which she, uh, she is involved in this sort of fictitious relationship with uh, Thomas Scott, who um, was this historical character that, that was um, at odds with Louis Riel. And I, I chose that incident because this incident with Louis Riel uh, was really a pivotal moment in Canadian history. So I really became interested in because this was art history, to really look at um, inserting an Aboriginal point of view um, uh, at history. Um, and so here, here's this, you know, the ex execution scene of Riel having Thomas Scott executed and I'm borrowing from Goya. I really so, sort of, you know, feel, um, move quite freely through, you know, Western art history and, and borrow references where I feel they are appropriate and mischief is kind of upstaging here. Um, I also wanted to kind of reverse this uh, this other theme that came up, that ran through the, this period of the 19th century, which was uh, grief, this romantic grief that a lot of these artists had that they were documenting a dying race, this 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 idea that really um, drove them, that really dominated their work. So this is a scene of romantic grief where Miss Chief is grieving at the grave now of Thomas Scott, and then lo and behold, behind her comes this very strapping young Aboriginal priest. Um, you'll just take note of the, the, the pose on the horse, um, because I also borrowed that from James Earl Fraser, uh, his, his iconic uh, sculpture, End of the Trail. So again, it was kind of reversing the grief, taking that, that moment of grieving over a dying race and reversing it and turning it into a grief uh, for mischief and her, her lover. Um, oops, this one's out of order. We'll come back to that. Uh, but anyway, this I kind of fused uh, this. Uh, this is a study for one of the paintings that's in the remix show, and um, it, it was really again kind of looking at that idea of of, of the this infatuation almost with Aboriginal people as being kind of somehow irrelevant or or some, uh, something a relic of the past. And uh, of course, it borrowed from from the um, Jerome's uh, Pygmalion. This is a study for um, the Trappers. It's called The Trapper's Bride, and there's the large version of this in the remix exhibition, but it, it's um, also based on a, a painting by, uh, from the 19th century, which is this one in which the, the uh, young uh, Aboriginal woman is kind of being offered as a, as a bride. So to me, again, this kind of tied into um, this, this, this uh, intersection of sexuality and colonization and how th this, this kind of fluid space. This is um, uh, a painting by George Catlin, and I've found inspiration in this piece for a number of different works. Um, it's the only painting that George Catlin made of the, the Bardash or the man-woman tradition. And um, in his journals, he, he, 
you know, he talked about uh, how it was one of the most disgusting things he'd ever seen and how he wished for it to be extinguished forever. Um, so that was something I found really particularly fascinating about, about uh, George Catlin, is the, the contradictions in, in his own work, uh, purporting to be this documentarian, you know, saving this, this race from, from, from being wiped out forever and, and, and uh, preserving their images, and at the same time, kind of when he, when he came across things that sort of dis, uh, displeased him or um, didn't fit his, his own social uh, mores, you know, he would talk about how he wished for it to be extinguished. This is a painting called The Triumph of Mischief, and um, it's, a, it's a rather large painting, and again, it was imagining this dance, or this ritual dance, honor dance to the, uh, to the Bear Dash, and I uh, cast Mischief in this role. And there's lots going on in this painting, too much to kind of talk about in this five minutes I have left. Um, but I also found inspiration for that painting for a performance that I did at the Royal Ontario Museum, um, in which uh, it, I sort of, it, it, it was, um, I guess a seance per se, and I had conversations uh, with Delacroix and Catlin and, and Paul Kane, and um, Miss Chief uh, kind of um, called them up and, and had conversations uh, with them, and they all they all responded to her in, in their own words, so directly out of their journals. And at the very end, I kind of took George Catlin to task about you know his own writing about how he wished for this dance to the Burdash to be extinguished. And then uh, she sort of mischief sort of revives it, and the music starts playing, and these 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 young Aboriginal dancers kind of jump out of the out of the audience and tear off their shirts, and they start dancing. Um, George Catlin uh, and Paul Kane. Uh, this is a painting of George Catlin. He uh, they, they really despised Aboriginal people if they showed any sort of influence of European culture. And this was one of the things I think that really kind of ties in nicely to the remix exhibition is that the fact that there was this con there was con right from the, from from the, the the moment of contact there was this fluid space between cultures and often it you know it could have been as superficial as you know fashion and trading off of fashion and that's something that comes up in my work a lot um, and uh, so that the, the the dandy is this other character that uh, that has really sort of been figuring um, rather prominently in my work as of late because. Um, Catlin wrote, you know, four pages about these beautiful flamboyant men that he encountered in this Mandan village, um, went to make a portrait of one of them, and then because this young, beautiful man didn't have rank, uh, it disturbed the, the warriors and the chiefs, and he was forbidden to actually make the painting. But he spent four pages talking about, you know, these, these dandies and how they would spend their day basically at leisure, they would watch men play sports, they didn't go hunting, they didn't go to war but they made the most spectacular outfits out of little animals that they could catch with their own hands, like bunny rabbits and, and squirrels and things. So um, I thought that Dandy was really uh, an interesting uh, character who could kind of stand in as this persona for kind of ambiguous sexuality, perhaps, especially with the way Catelyn described them, but also um, because they were the fashion-forward gentlemen of the tribe. Um, and they were also this missing, the deliberately unpainted or obliterated character. They could stand in for these other missing narratives. So I created this series of um, ghost-like dandy drawings where I imagine who the, what these dandies might look like with their incorporation of European elements, whether they were top hats or boots or that, that sort of thing, because um, Catelyn would never paint an Aboriginal person if, who showed any of that influence. In fact, I'm just going to go back, oh sorry, I'm going to go back to this guy. And he made this painting into kind of a moral lesson about how this this gentleman here 
uh, pigeon's egg went to Washington and how he came back corrupted and he put the, you know, the alcohol in his pockets and so forth. So he really used him as a, as a lesson in, in, in uh, what not to do. Um, so, um, but I came across this ledger drawing uh, by um, some Kiowa men uh, who were incarcerated during the Indian Wars and you can see all the, the, the prominence of the parasol. So I started to imagine the dandy uh, as you know, always ever present with the parasol because in, even though these were done um, in, in the same time period that Catlin or Kane were painting Aboriginal people, you would never see them paint an Aboriginal person with a parasol. So a lot of my dandies have parasols and you can see in the, the ghosted image of the, the dandies in the background with parasols, usually just kind of observing, um, sort of imagining them trying to st you know, uh, catch the attention of the artist. So I did uh, some little sketches of what these dandies might look like. And then I did a, a number of these images where the dandies are actually in the landscape. And you can see the artist here hasn't included them in his, his painting. Or they're observing photographers, you know, kind of choosing their own images or staging various shots, like uh, in kind of referring to Edward Curtis. Uh, the dandies uh, ever present, but not really being documented. Uh, Catlin also did these images of these um, lacrosse players. So I was interested in these male-male relationships, of course, and you know the, the warrior relationships. So I again looked at art history. The, the, this one was Jean, by Jean Brock, but it's uh, Apollo and Hyacinth. Uh, Tiepolo did a version of uh, Apollo and, and Hyacinth where Apollo killed uh, Hyacinth. I guess in the original it was a discus, but in this case he transposed it to tennis. So I transposed it to lacrosse. And, um, and then I it sort of brought the, the two together, brought the dandies and these uh, you know, sporting events, uh, the, the real men of the tribe, <laughs> where the dandies are observing men at war or men hunting uh, and, and so on and so forth. Here they're not present because they're not uh, part, of, part of war. And here all of the men are kind of, uh, there's uh, Aboriginal men and white men and they're without their clothing and this is from an Eakins, uh, borrowed from an Eakins painting. This is, uh, uh, this is just wrapping up. This is uh, an image from a still from uh, my most recent uh, video work, which is called Dance to the Burdash. And again, it's borrowing inspiration from Catlin's painting in, in which um, the, 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 these four men um, are kind of in this uh, ritual honor dance to the, the Burdash of the tribe. And um, so these were the these are the four dancers kind of imagined with these elements that sort of are dandyish the top hats and the, the parasol, and uh, the chor the choreographer is a friend of mine, Michael Grayeyes, who's playing Cree, and he, he has a vast repertoire of uh, ballet. He was in the National Ballet for a number of years and uh, modern and Aboriginal dance forms. This is just uh, an installation shot of uh, the ins the um, the installation. Uh, the projections on, on these different buffalo hides. And that just brings me to the piece here at the AGO. And, and, and this is, a, again, a painting where I kind of, uh, kind of ending with this because this is where I, I've, I brought the, uh, the, the Burdash roll and the Dandy roll together in this one painting and um, worked with a number of different influences here in the, in the collection um, to, to create this piece. So I think I'll just leave it at there for now. Thank you. Hello, everybody. My name is Franco Mondini Ruiz, and uh, 
I was introduced that I was going to be very energetic. I'm going to try my best. I'm running on fumes right now. I'm going to be performing uh, tomorrow night at the Massive Uprising Party. I hope some of you will be there. The last two days, I've been, with the help of some wonderful volunteers, assembling about 300 small and crazy sculptures. So I'm kind of in an art trance. So if I draw a blank, bear with me. Let's see. First, let's see if I can work the slide machine. I'm going to read you out of my book, and I'll, I'll be constantly trying to peddle things to you, so just be forewarned. This is my book called High Pink Tex-Mex Fairy Tales. It's 52 pages of poetry and... Am I too loud, or is this sound... Okay. Of poetry and short stories accompanied by uh, photos of some of my work. It's uh, published by Distributed Art Publishers out of New York, and it's one of their top 25 best-selling uh, artist monographs. Not to brag, but just thought I'd mention that. <laughs> and it's very personal, and it's about my life and about growing up in San Antonio, Texas, and the issues I've dealt with about identity and culture and sexuality. It's very specific, but it seems the more specific you get in things, sometimes uh, a greater universal appeal it, it may have. And that's something I, I learned by writing this book. Historia de un amor, a love story. My poor, clueless dad from a marble palazzo. My poor, clueless mom from a house with no doors. I guess they thought movie star looks were enough to have in common, and they lived unhappily ever after. Until eventually the big split. After 30 years, dad finally went back to his hometown in Italy, his ragazza. It didn't hurt that she had inherited two villas and lazzalire, and mom went back to being alone. That's my poor, clueless dad from a marble palazzo and my poor, clueless mom from a house that had no doors. I am a product of different classes and different viewpoints towards the world and different um, cultures. My father speaks seven languages, never had a cavity, grew up in Bracciano, that beautiful town where Tom Cruise got married, where my grandfather was mayor and lived in a five-story marble palazzo in the center of town. My mother is from a crooked house built by my great-grandfather, who was an elevator man, uh, downtown San Antonio. Uh, she, according to my dad, didn't even speak one language, didn't even speak English or Spanish correctly. She grew up in a culture that was very confused and very complicated at the time. She grew up in a culture where in San Antonio, Texas, where 50 to 70% of the population is Spanish-speaking and Latino, where it became practically against the law to speak Spanish. She'd be kicked out of school if she spoke her first language. She had a fourth-grade education, and she grew up very simply, but she was very beautiful and looked like Gina Lola Brigida and married up, as they say, and married a fancy Italian father. And as the poem suggests, they did live unhappily ever after. The romanticization between the two cultures and the different education levels grew stressed, stressful. And I grew up in the shadow of a constant battle of the, con the conquest, a superior Eurocentric father and an indigenous mother of impure bloodlines that wasn't sure, was fiercely loyal to her culture, but not sure how to express it. It would be my generation and later generations that finally 
were being taken seriously when they tried to put that into words and into art. As the son of an Italian immigrant and the son of a mother from the wrong side of the tracks, of course I didn't go to law, uh, they didn't work their butts off for me to go to college and become an artist and study art. That was unheard of even just a generation ago. Uh, I did the right thing and I became a successful corporate lawyer. And um, with the advantage of having grown up a very acculturated, I grew up in a white suburb of San Antonio, Texas. I learned how to walk and talk and act and feel almost like a white boy, which is part of my heritage. Because of that, though, I got ahead in life. I uh, graduated third in my law school class. I was a lawyer at the age of 22. I was hired in a swanky law firm that had never hired a Latino in the 150 years of its history. But my name was not Franco Mondini Ruiz yet. I was, Gino, I was Franco Mondini. I was Italian. I wasn't quite a wasp. I wasn't quite even a white Catholic. I was an Italian Catholic. And, but I could get away with that in the pecking, societal pecking order at that time in fancy schmancy law firms. Things have changed completely um, for the better in the last 15 or 20 years. But I was at that tail end where it was still uh, a city and a culture divided, where the, even the word Mexican wasn't used in polite company. It was Spanish or it was a word that was whispered. A lot has changed since then. And I have been at the right place at the right time that you will see as a recurring theme in my life. So, I don't like being a lawyer. I did it for 10 years, though, and it was great. I dressed up in Hugo Boss suits. The, the drag was great. I lived on the most expensive street in San Antonio. I lived in a glass house, and I had a tan, and I weighed 155 pounds, and life was good. And I would spend my money um, mixing people up because all of a sudden I got into a higher society and they'd be having a fiesta party and with a fiesta theme and Mexican music and Mexican food, and I'd be the only Mexican there. And I'm only 50% Mexican, so there was a half Mexican out of 1,000 people, except for, of course, the wait staff and the cooks and the clean, cleaners. And this, like I say, this was only 20 years ago, and I spoke up. And it wasn't just me. It was a whole new breed of us that had grown up acculturated and thankful being part of the dominant culture or appreciative of it and, and, and being in the swim of it, but saying, wait a minute, this is not the only culture in my city. I want more. I want to live in a cosmopolitan milieu where there's a mix of people, a mix of classes. A mi I wanted a more exciting life. So I, I started having my own parties and mixing people up. I eventually even quit being a lawyer. I, not because I was rich, but I paid off all my bills. I couldn't stand it one more minute. I was, I was always a creative person, an artistic person, paid off my bills and started sleeping on the couches of all the friends that used to sleep on my couch when I was a rich lawyer. So what does that corn cob and that Pepsi bottle have to do with any of this? I go to Mexico City and have to sort all this out. Who am I? What is my culture? What am I doing? I wanted to go back to the motherland, go back to Mexico City. So one thing I learned painfully, which I'll tell you in a minute, is the answer I was giving as I was asking this question. I was staying at the Plaza Santa Catarina with, with sophisticated friends of mine that loved Mexico. Some were Latino, some were white, Anglo, and they lived in a beautiful crumbling palace. 
where only the you know American expats would live at that time. And I sorted out thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of pieces of garbage that were in the plaza. You know, I don't know what that instinct was. It was part of what I was trying to sort out, the cultural mix. Look at this. Look at the mixture of pumpkin seeds and oranges and Pepsi Cola bottles and diapers. And it's a milieu, it's a mixture of cultures. And I kept going and going and going until 32,000 pieces of trash later, I was done. And I realized something. I was not a Mexican. I wasn't necessarily an American either, or maybe I was. I was a hybrid of culture. And I was a lucky generation of being a hybrid of culture where I had a voice that was being taken seriously. This was the beginning of art that where I was expressing this hybridization, this remix, this postmodernity, postmodern way of looking at who we are. So, knowing I'm not a Mexican, <laughs> because I'd go to the fancy parties there, and guess what? There were no Mexicans at the parties again. <laughs> There'd be it'd be very, very uh, racially divided. So what I did, when I got back home, I discovered, with the last money I had, an old uh, botanica. A botanica is a store that sells medicines and potions and religious statues, and um, it was on its last legs, and it had gorgeous, gorgeous inventory from the 1920s through the 1990s. And with the last of my money, I took over this place, added contemporary art, added all the beautiful, beautiful, beautiful things that I'd collected. I even put my shoes in there and my colognes and just everything I had, I purged in this store. And overnight, it became the place. And the Joffrey Ballet, if they were visiting town, would have a party there. Uh, all the rich people would shop there. The Mexican grandmothers would still come. Gangsters would come to buy dresses for their girlfriends society ladies would drop off a box of Chanel dresses that I would sell for $20. Um, I had a pocket full of money this big, and I would spend it on more and more and more parties, living like there was no tomorrow and mixing everybody up with alcohol and sales and peddling. I used peddling as a way of creating an equality amongst people where they were all just shopping together. So I'd have the richest lady in town next to a Mexican grandmother, next to a, uh, a drag queen looking for a love potion, next to a priest buying some uh, Spanish colonial candlesticks. I had a very, very good time. My friend Alejandro Diaz, as we Latinos were getting more of a voice, was accepted to Bard Center for Curatorial Studies. He wrote his master's thesis on what I had done at this... Um, at this botanica. Was called, his thesis was called Gorgeous Politics, the Art and Life of Franco Mondini Ruiz. And I owe him a lot because that got me out of San Antonio. I didn't want to leave necessarily, but I did the show at Bard, and it turned out... Oh, wait, this was a show I did at Art Pace. Linda Pace, who uh, was our big patron of San Antonio, pumped millions and millions and millions of dollars into San Antonio and changed a lot of our lives. She brought people from outside that took what we were doing seriously. When I would call that botanica an art piece, a social installation, the people, although many of them were even my friends, would laugh at me, would say it was ridiculous that I was putting on airs that that was an art piece, that that was something to be taken seriously. Um, but Linda Pace brought in curators from around the world that saw what we were doing and the energy and the message that was going into it 
and it led to my first residency at ArtPace, where I made a super duper sleek version of a Mexican botanica meets Prada boutique. And everything was for sale from 10 cents to $10,000. And that floor was a bitch to keep clean. Then I go to Bard, and I'm always at the right place at the right time, and I borrow hundreds of objects from all of my friends uh, of my this mix, this cultural mix that I'm talking about, I ship them all to New York, I mean to Bard, well, Annandale on Hudson, and put them in this beautiful grid. I was, once again, it was like the Forrest Gump movie. I um, was always at the right place at the right time. During the week that the show was up, 60 of the world's most important curators were visiting Bard and my life changed overnight. It was like in a movie where there was a line of people giving me their card, and before I knew it, I was in the Whitney Biennial and uh, the Museo del Barrio, and pretty much in a plane for the next seven years, uh, touting my wares and toning my message. And part of the message comes not only from my artistic, privileged father, and I don't mean this weepy, I mean this with conviction, and it was a hard thing to come to terms with, but a lot of it comes to an unspoken sophistication artistry that my mother's indigenous culture had. My mother didn't even believe she was an artist until she finally saw a quote of me saying that in the local newspaper. But I want to read a little bit about my mom. The keeper of cakes. You'll see that my work has a lot of pastries and cakes in it which also reminds me of the sale I'm going to be doing uh, as I spoke earlier. <laughs> My mother's house is where cakes go to die. She sneaks them home in her purse and allows the refrigerated newcomers to lie in state in their styrofoam sarcophagi and shrouds of tin foil amongst the curdling milk and the bags of liquefied spinach she hoards. She lovingly tends to cupcakes that we are not allowed to touch until they self-implode after six or seven years. And her china closet, it is a reliquary of sugar doves, long divorced, and birthday cake flowers, now with grandchildren of their own. As a child, I longed for a house like my friend Dean Lamert's, one with only a clean clipper ship on the fireplace mantel. If you like the Lamert's house so much, why don't you go live with them? The keeper of cakes would taunt, stung by my dismissal of her handiwork, her incorruptibles, her jewels. But I know deep down that I could never leave a house where cakes go to die and where donuts drop by just to sit and think. <laughs> so my mother, like I say, brought a sensibility and a magic to my life, as, as many people of her culture do, in the sense that, although she's a devout Catholic, where did she learn that all our cats possessed the spirits of our dead ancestors? I wasn't at that mass. <laughs> uh, so there was things that were carried over. There was a sensibility that was unspoken, but definitely was different than no matter how acculturated I had gotten in the white suburbs, in the fancy law firms, on the most expensive street on Geneseo, and the fanciest parties in Mexico City. There was something passed down to me as an artist that still floats out and is very important in my work. 
oh, this is very similar to that sale I'm going to have tomorrow night, I may not have mentioned. This is similar to what I've been doing at the Whitney Biennial. Speaking of cakes, though, the model I've been using is it pained me that I did not want art to be something elite. I don't mind being friends with the elite. I don't mind being helped by them. But I wanted an art form that was accessible to all types of people because I f was in between many worlds of the haves and the have-nots. And it was just, there was a whole generation of us that were cultural and societal mediators. And the last thing I wanted to do was just jump ship completely. And maybe some people thought I was a Malinche or a traitor because I wanted to still belong to both worlds. Malinche was the Indian princess that had uh, uh, became Cortez's courtesan. She was a mediator between the European world and the Indian world. So that is kind of a shaky role that a lot of my generation of artists had played, especially in the art world, belonging to, to many different worlds at the same time. But I follow a format of the Mexican bakery. When you go into a Mexican bakery, everything is dizzyingly beautiful, and everybody, no matter of what class, can get all they want for the most part. And uh, rich or poor, you can only put so much on that tray, and it's enough for everybody. And that is kind of the model I want to follow as a visual artist. So far, it's been good, but it's still a shaky, uh, shaky battle all the time. Um, these are just examples of, of, of my fortunate success where I was starting to be flown all over the world and bring in this sensibility of making things affordable and magical. This is a, a show at Kiasma, at Ars 01 in Kiasma, which is the main uh, gallery in Finland. I had local uh, glass blowers make uh, beer bottles into um, delicate vases. I even got a gig in Toronto. So this is a show I did, uh, well, this is a cousin of the piece that I would have done at the AGO called high yellow. High yellow means, um, is usually a word used in black culture where you're light-skinned enough or white acting enough to pass as white. And I use that as a metaphor because um, being a gay person or being a Mexican-American, I often passed as straight in my earlier days and I passed as white in my earlier days. So I'm very sensitive to this whole notion of passing and the advantages it gave me, but also the conflict that it brought to me. But all ended very happily, as this slide shows. This is me, seven years younger, with a pretty girl. Where is she today? Who knows? Does anyone know that girl? She's a Toronto girl. And she was my assistant in selling the birthday cake slices that were part of my Toronto show. So I've been pretty much in a plane for years after that. I won the Rome Prize, lived in Rome, and lived six years in New York. And I've come full circle, and I now live in my Mexican-American uh, great-grandmother's house in the Mexican barrio in San Antonio. And uh, I have, uh, everyone says, oh, it looks so authentic, but she did not have chandeliers in every room. <laughs> anyway, well, thank you very much, and that's it. I'm trying to formulate my first question in a way that's not uh, overwhelmingly complicated. But 
<laughs> for all of us. Um, I want to get into the question of hybridity um, because I think it could probably mean a lot of different things in, a, in different contexts. And I especially am interested in um, the sense that um, as the curatorial premise of Remix, um, Gerald marks out a, a kind of moment, a contemporary moment uh, in which uh, hybridity becomes uh, an issue for, for indigenous art, contemporary indigenous artists. And of course, again, uh, I'm sure he's as aware of anybody of, of the kind of complication of how that, that plays out. Um, and I think also one of the things that I took from Ken's, Kent's talk um, <laughs> uh, was uh, an idea in a sense that um, we're all already hybrid. You know, there's, there's no moment. Uh, one of the tricky things I think about the concept of hybridity is, um, you know, as a metaphor, it suggests two um, distinct originals that kind of come together to form something new. Uh, and yet, if we track it back, of course, there's a, a sequence of hybrid moments of which we capture one. Um, and I, I think that, you know, even uh, in the case of contact between Europeans and Aboriginal people, obviously that's a new kind of hybridity, but indigenous nations were influencing each other and changing their cultures uh, prior to that as well. So I think it's important to kind of recognize that we've always had that hybridity, but is there something happening now uh, that allows us to talk about it in a different way or, or that is, you know, have we shifted out of a, a, a situation like you're talking about where we're, uh, you know, we're just kind of fighting to get some recognition. The, that seems to be the, the, the struggle that the generation before us uh, or, you know, or even that in our younger days we're dealing with. And is there a kind of new moment where we can, we can play more uh, with the question of hybridity? Well, maybe I'll put it to Kent first and then. It's a tough question. Um. <laughs> That's what I'm here for. Uh, I don't know. That's almost a curatorial question. <laughs> Can we get Gerald on a conference call? <laughs> um, well, I suppose, but I think uh, part of it has to do maybe with the, with this kind of um, almost like a backlash, you know, being an Aboriginal person and and and, and being constantly um, kind of pigeonholed or or, or or put put into a box. And um, I think. Uh, there's a kind of momentum that comes from generation to generation as artists, you know, kind of, you know, pass on the torch to the next generation. The next generation is more emboldened to kind of take further steps and in a way sort of slough off the, um, these, these mantles which have been, you know, kind of put on them. And I think sometimes it's even as simple as the market, you know, really defining um, what people want to see from an Aboriginal artist. And, you know, so you have a lot of younger artists who are really kind of almost buying into something that might be an easy, you know, entry into the marketplace or something like that. So um, I think uh, as an artist, you kind of grow into uh, a confidence, you grow into a maturity in your own vision where those things no longer have an impact. And then you just, you finally find a place where you just say what you want to say regardless of whether it's a hybrid or had something to do with hybridity or purity or whatever, you're just at a point where you just know what you want to say. That's true. <laughs> I, I guess because of my legal training, I became very pragmatic and reasonable. And I wanted to look at things 
in a rational, reasonable way. So I had a strategy. I think this whole notion of hybridity, this whole notion of now let's <coughs> preserve things that are disappearing through mass acculturation, through you know, making culture so homogeneous, that I said, this is a waste. Why would, why, why would in San Antonio would you not want 70% of a population that speaks a second language not to know that second language? Why would you try to outlaw that? Why would you try to be on, on the board of a contemporary art group and just focus on one type of art and flying people from all over the world when in your own backyard there are people with ancient, bizarre histories that are making art and being ignored? Why would you want to have a party with a fiesta theme and flying all these people from Dallas and Houston and Austin and New York <laughs> when you can invite all your Mexican friends and have a real fiesta party? To me, it was just being practical. Don't waste human resources. And all that we have in us coming from different cultures and different classes and different world experiences, those are valuable resources. And I go crazy, I went crazy that my neighborhood, that my friends, that my town, that my community, that my state was just overlooking resources that could just be picked up off the ground and everybody would be richer because of that. And so I had a very strategic way of looking at hybridity. Like, listen to us, we really do have different ways of looking at things that might even be better. I think in a way you're, um, raising a question about how that relationship then gets negotiated uh, in the art world. Um, and I think in a way um, you came to an issue which we now might think of as relational aesthetics or you know we mm -hmm. have kind of categories, but yeah. in a way these categories uh, often get retroactively applied to something that you worked out in the logic of your own yeah. life and career. Of course. Um, but would it, does it ruin it <laughs> uh, to talk about the relationship of bartering in your work? Uh, you know, does it ruin the, uh, the, the effect of bartering to talk about uh, why, why that's important in your work? You mean bartering as far as? Uh, Over? Uh, selling? Selling, yes. Yeah, I don't barter, I okay, sell. sorry. Bar <laughs> I, what I meant to say was bargain, actually. Sorry. I have a very bad business vocabulary. Yes, because kind of is paying homage to a working class <laughs> That's where class politics comes into play. I wanted to make artistic statements with my own money. I didn't want anyone's crumbs. I didn't want the rich white aristocracy. I didn't want to be their, their pet Mexican artist. And with that, try to make a change. So I wanted, I got my push cart and I sold my donuts and I made money and I got the parties the way I wanted them to be. So it's societal, it's socioeconomic, and it is cultural politics. The only job that Mexican people could have in San Antonio were shelling pecans and making tacos. And all of those even got usurped in, in San Antonio culture. But I am very sensitive to even the economic strategies that are needed for me to be free to do what I want to say as an artist or as a cultural activist. I have a question for you, Kent, about the importance of painting as painting in your work. Um, I remember back in the 80s, uh, you know, reading in the journal October uh, when, when Hans Hacke 
had um, uh, done a painting of Margaret Thatcher, I think it was, uh, and everyone was so shocked about this return to painting that the only way they could talk about it was, um, you know, as the, the kind of a form of painting as a kind of found object, you know, that he had taken a particular style of portrait painting and reproduced it, and that they, they, they couldn't deal with, you know, they were so far into the death of painting that they couldn't uh, deal with it as a painting. And in a certain sense, you're, you're dealing with the history of painting in that way as, as found objects that you bring together, but I also get a sense that the painting itself is uh, a really important process for you. Um, and at the same time, I, I also realized just from kind of watching the way you work that you don't, um, you're not reproducing the historical techniques, uh, you know, in the way that those paintings might originally have been painted, but at the same time, you're giving a kind of convincing enough reproduction of them. So I'm, I'm curious to know what that process is like. And, um, you know, I mean, we don't have to talk about it as an instance of, uh, hybridity or a, a kind of mimetic process, you know, an imitative process of engaging with a lot of different histories. But I'm just curious about what that process of painting is like for you, you know, on a technical level. Well, sure. Uh, well, there's kind of two points here. One uh, is the, 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 the new medium now, which it w I mean, I've been painting with acrylic for a number of years, and I'm, I'm pretty convinced, ha having worked with acrylics now for a number of years, that had acrylics been around in the period of time of the old masters, they would be working with acrylics as well. It's kind of about you know adapting your, your skills to the current technology, um, and because really at the foundation of, of, of painting or drawing is just like what you, how you what you do with your hand, and um, it's uh, the other thing of course was just the fact that I really wanted to um, make a point of embracing a much wider vocabulary of painting because I felt uh, like the modernists had really deconstructed painting. And to me, that whole deconstruction, that whole sort of deliberate amnesia was really r running um, at, concurrently with this, this, this modern, modern, modernity's disruption of indigenous cultures. Like somehow this willful amnesia was kind of obliterating uh, languages, was obliterating cultures. So I felt that somehow embracing a, uh, a vocabulary that was really pre, you know, pre-modern was going to uh, somehow kind of underscore this idea of um, being comfortable with history, uh, reflecting on history, being part of history, following a lineage from history without uh, the disruptions or, or, or severances that, you know, kind of remove people from, from their own land, from their own languages. So in a way, it's kind of like this restorative, almost like therapeutic act of Re-engaging with history and um, kind of you know reconnecting my own ties to histories. And was there something about the process of reproducing things in painting, doing that kind of imitation, that you feel like you learned something about those paintings that you might not have, uh, you know, through some other kind of engagement with them? Well, it's 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 just like that's how painters have learned for, for, for many hundreds of years is through the act of, of first through copying and as you copy you gain the skills and you're kind of uh, imprinting them in your hand and into your brain and eventually you don't need to copy anymore you start you know creating your own compositions and you've got you've, you've like sort of absorbed all of those things that you've been very methodically you know observing. Franco, you've also moved into, I don't know, maybe you've done it there before as well, but we were looking upstairs at some work that uh, involves painting and mm -hmm. which involves a, a kind of repertoire of 
historical techniques and references as well. Could you talk a little bit about um, what those references mean and how, how you bring them into play? Yes. Um, part of it, once again, is uh, I, I don't want to dwell too much on economic strategy, but part of it <laughs> was that when I make paintings, when I do sculptures, it's the donuts that I'm selling to do the other things that I want to do societally, the social sculptures. And I started paint, I'm, although I'm untrained as a painter, definitely what I show in my paintings is a, uh, it's, a it's an homage also to the sensibilities of my parents. Uh, my dad was a, uh, my dad painted corny Roman landscapes, which you know I used to make fun of, and now I make, paint them for a living. So. And my mother, you know, comes from a culture of uh, you know, the retablo and the exvotos and the primitive forms of painting. And just being an acculturated American or an acculturated contemporary person, uh, I am sampling like a DJ, samples from different cultures. And that is part of this post-post hybridity that you start talking about. Then, you know, am I belong to everything and miss, you know, part of American mainstream culture and I get all the advantages of that? But then I have to be careful not to be a hypocrite and say, oh, but I'm also a Latino and I'm part of this niche audience and all that. When it comes to paintings, um, I definitely <coughs> have evolved past the issues of race and culture and class. And really starting getting more into just a non-culture-based issues of, of art and the commerce of art. And uh, part of it is making a product, an art product, which is a painting which appeals to people at a very reasonable price and sells very easily. And I mean, that's not a commercial, that's not a commercial. <laughs> <laughs> well, it could be, it sounds like one, which you'll see tomorrow night at the event. No. Uh, but part of it is that, part of it is, is just creating a no-nonsense product that says, oh my God, that's a great price, I'll take it. And um, I love it. It's the Mexican panaderia again. It's that model again, which I'm bringing to the greater art table of the world and which I'm bringing from a little Mexican neighborhood in San Antonio. Once again, it's connected to that. I have a big variety of donuts, which are the paintings. This <laughs> is a question that's asked somewhat naively because I don't have a lot of experience of Mexico. Mm -hmm. I've never been there. Um, but one of the things that, uh, at least in reading uh, about Mexico, um, the, the question of hybridity in Mexico mm -hmm. um, is, something that seems to be, you know, it's kind of part of official culture and state narrative to a certain extent in, in, in a kind of imaginative sense, uh, you know, in the kind of founding imagination. So uh -huh. on one hand, I, I presume um, it's easier to talk about, but it seems that in the, the, the kind of reality of uh, yeah. lived experience, it's different. Oh my God, that's a brilliant observation. <laughs> I mean, it really is. Like when I went to Mexico. So here I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to go to Mexico. I'm going to the mother country and I'm not going to put up with all this bullshit where I go to my friends' parties and everybody's blonde and it's a fiesta party, you know? And guess what? I go to Mexico City and it's a fiesta party and everybody's blonde. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God. So you're right. It's kind of like that on paper. But now you get these Mexican-Americans like myself that learn how to walk and talk and breathe like a uh, dominant culture person and I'm going to speak up. I'm not you know, a, uh, an Indian, you know, uh, person without a political voice. So that's what's kind of happening in American culture too, where it's, it just can't be on paper. It has to be the real thing. And my generation, we started to speak up. But it's recent. I mean, our parents didn't want us to rock the boat. 
We didn't even use the word Mexican 20 years ago. So it's, it's fresh. Yeah. One of the things that I've seen, you know, that, that, that's been a kind of indicator in my life around the issue of uh, uh, passing and cultural mm -hmm. interaction, I remember when I was very young, we would be walking around uh, in Vancouver, uh, and my mother would spot a native woman who had dyed her hair blonde and was trying to pass. Mm -hmm. And it would, you know, usually it would be, you know, we, we, the woman was not passing by any standard, but you'd see her mm -hmm. and you'd say, okay, here's someone who's, uh, you know, who's, who's, who's trying to pass. And you could, you could sympathize with that at the time because the benefits that that person might get from passing were real. Um, and then there was a moment when I don't think anybody would have done that. Uh, you know, there was a kind of cultural na nationalism that uh, I think characterized um, the group of artists that, uh, that Gerald talks about in the remix catalog as being the kind of breakthrough artists. Um, and there's a, there's a kind of language to that. Uh, and then now I do see young native uh, men and women with blonde hair, for example, and I don't think immediately this person's trying to pass. I right. think this person is, just wants to have blonde hair today. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's a really, really big difference. And there's something about um, the kind of playful exchange of signs uh, that can ha that, that's allowed to occur now that's quite different from the, the kind of over, you know, where everything was so overdetermined. Oh, it was so serious. It was just, you know, you couldn't be too Mexican, you couldn't be too white. You, you know, if anything, I'd be accused of trying to pass as a Mexican. Right. <laughs> no, that's what I'd be right. accused of. Yeah, it's, it's a relief, at least I see in my culture, that those are becoming passe issues. But at the same time, we're holding on to some things that we think are real about our culture. Ditto. I mean, <laughs> kind of, but when he's talking about the blonde hair and all that, mm -hmm. and it kind of ties in with what you were talking mm -hmm. about then too, but what you were just describing as the superficial borrowing of each other's cultures. So it's nothing new, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. Well, the thing that's really interesting about Kent's work in terms of this borrowing is, um, you know, that just blown me away is just how serious a researcher you are. Um, you know, I mean, I've been to your studio, I've seen the piles of books, I've watched you talk about these things, and, um, you know, you're not borrowing in a superficial way at all. And I'm interested in that. Um, is the 19th century so particularly interesting just because it's this kind of crucible in which um, you know, all these ideas were, you know, kind of, uh, about indigenous people came to fruition. And do you, um, is that why we need to kind of go back to them and, and, uh, and, and take them apart in the way that you do? I, well, I think my, my, my fascination with the 19th century really stemmed from just, uh, it was kind of uh, like from just my interest as a painter, you know, like looking at that hmm. period really as being that last period that followed this grand tradition of painting because you know the modernists started to chip away and it was about the brushstroke or and then it was about color and it was kind of the tail end of this period that really kind of embraced uh, a very broad vocabulary and into kind of a symphony of painting and that's that's really where it started and then as I went in I saw that it was also this it was a turning point really for uh, the, the balance of power that actually did exist here between Aboriginal people and the Europeans. And specifically, I mean, I did that one trilogy of paintings about Louis Riel because, you know, at that time, Riel was, uh, you know, the, basically the, the president of a republic, uh, you know, and it was that, that, that shifting uh, of power that happened in that, that you know, late 19th century, early 20th century where things really went the op in, in a different direction. Okay, I think we're out of time. 
thank you both very much. I really enjoyed talking with you, and thank you. I just want to thank all three of you, and uh, many of us remember Ultra Baroque, which had also a similar title. It was Aspects of Post-Latin American Art. Yes. And now this one and is Post-Post-Latin. <laughs> <laughs> so I have things just quickly to say to all of you. I, I really liked your points about the hybrid nature of, of culture. That this is not something new. This is perhaps more extreme. I had a very interesting conversation in front of somebody in the gallery the other day in front of uh, Ellen Atsui, which, who is a contemporary West African artist. And she said, well, why do you call him a contemporary African artist? It's not traditional African art. And I said, well, whose tradition? What are you talking about? You know, what are the traditions? And of course, the African art we have up there is art that has evolved and evolved. So very interesting. I love the liveliness in both Ultra Baroque and this exhibition, which many of you probably haven't had a chance to see yet. It's a very affordable catalog. <laughs> Since, you know, he's on only $24.95, of course, with your member's discount, much less. But um, I love the liveliness, and I love the fact that you're dealing with really serious issues, but with fun and with humor and with something of a lightness of being at the same time. And Richard, thank you so much. And stop apologizing for me not being Gerald. You're an excellent Richard. <laughs>